there's one song on the album uh, that's the live vocal, and then mm -hmm. the rest are all the 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 the, uh, the vocals on the album. Are, you can chart how drunk I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. When I listen to my first solo album, I just get like, oh God, what a hangover that was. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, um, I'd heard worse. <laughs> <laughs> coming out in september september damn it all right nice. maybe not a see supposed i was hoping a couple months yeah it was supposed to be out in may but because of the pandemic and the backlog yeah there was a lack of printing paper for books uh, it's amazing cool. how many things are backed up from the pandemic right i went to go order a short the sm58 mic mm. they're oh. like you could put a deposit on it it'll be in in february ridiculous yeah. i just Four of them. I just I went to four or three different stores, but oh. you were able to find them. I couldn't <laughs> find cordless. Yeah, you have to wow. figure out what time you tried to order one and the and the time you bought those four because you may be the reason for his uh, his delay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just had Dave Alvin in here and he bought up the rest of them. That was it. You <laughs> couldn't get oh, any more. <laughs> yeah, it's rough, dude. It's absolutely rough. I feel like I've called stores that I know were shitty before the pandemic hit, and they're using the pandemic as an excuse. And I'm just like, you guys fucking sucked long before 2019. Don't tell me. <laughs> That's ridiculous. A paper shortage, though. That's fucking wild. I didn't think we were going to go into that. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I've ordered. The book comes out in September. Oh, that's great, though, dude. It looks it looks amazing, man. I can't wait to read it. I always wonder, like, at a certain point, like, is it just something that you felt compelled to do? Somebody suggested or were you like, I need to get this shit down because we're not doing anything? Uh, somebody was uh, uh, crazy enough to ask me to do it. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it really uh, I was when I was a kid, um, I studied uh, writing nice. in my uh, checkered college career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had some great teachers, and that's really how I learned how to write songs. And uh, was I had some very strict writing teachers who, in the poetry classes, taught us you had to write sonnets, you had to write in blank verse, you had to write, you know, blah blah blah. You had to rhyme. You had to learn metric, you know, all the the various metrical forms. Most mm -hmm. of them forgotten, but it took me from being a guy that occasionally sat down and wrote free verse that was just like nah, 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 uh, to be in oh i can oh i can kind of when it you know um when when my brother and i started the blasters we just mm -hmm. wanted to play you know old hallow wolf songs and you know carl perkins songs and right. very songs and uh, but then we realized if we were going to get anywhere we had to get a uh, we had to have original songs mm. and so <clears throat> at one band rehearsal my brother said next week Everybody brings in three songs. Cool. Yeah, and I was the only idiot that brought in three songs. <laughs> and so I became a songwriter. And uh, 
And um, so, you know, I put out. Uh, that's a great way to figure out who's going to be the writer in a new band, though. It's like, all right, everybody do this assignment. And the only one that comes in with it, like, you're it, dude. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a chump. Um, yeah. You know, and um, um, so, I, you know, over the over the years, before even then, I, I'd been in a, some small press poetry books and put out one myself. And then uh, nice. over the years, I did, a, I did a book back in the 90s called Any Rough Times Are Now Behind You that uh, um, was put out by the sort of punk rock press down in San Diego. Nice. That did it. That did really well. And, but, you know, the weird thing about books is, um, well, you know, I mean, I'm a fan of real writers, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, there's only a few rock and rollers that are real writers, you know? <laughs> and right. I don't know if I qualify, maybe at times, some of my songs do, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Leonard Cohen, mm. real writer. Right. Know? And, you know, I'll, I'll stack my best songs against his worst. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but it may, is that, see, I find that very, to be very humbling and very modest of you though. Cause I think if you talk to anybody else about your work, they, they hold it in very high regard. Well, a lot of people drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best answer ever. <laughs> I'm proud of what I do. Good. I don't, I don't think I suck at it. No. I'm just, but, I'm just, but here's a, you know, the idea of a book is kind of uh, uh, scary. Yeah. You know, books mean John Updike. Right. Books mean yeah, great author. Mean, yeah. You know, Flannery O'Connor. They're 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 books. Yeah. And um. And uh, yeah, you know, and I do think that uh, musical lyrics can be poetry mm -hmm. oh yeah um not all of them you know um mm -hmm. but a lot of you know some of them yeah 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 and um so what this book is it's a lot it's a lot of my lyrics that are the ones that i think can stand up outside of the music and, right but it's and it's also a lot of um uh it's all stuff i wrote all the things in it are about music or musicians or people that were in the music scene sweet uh, so it's and but i wrote them for some are obituaries that i wrote for newspapers some are essays that i've written for um you know reissue albums of people like ray charles and frank zappa and people like that or merle haggard nice. and um uh so just put them all into one book because i, I am technically working on a memoir oh you know, great wow. The same publisher that was crazy enough to ask me to do this. Yeah. Do that. Well, I, I love the concept for this book. Because I, lo I love that you're doing a memoir, too. Because that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask you if you're actually doing something about, you know, a little bit more expansive. But this is a great idea to have, like, a combination of kind of all, a little bit of all your work in there and your experiences. And because it's hard, if you're a fan of an artist, sometimes it's really hard to find their work. Even, even, as, even something as simple as, like, trying to find the actual lyrics from an yeah. album or from a thing it can be really hard to find and i kind of like that you've compiled a whole um you know thing into a book yeah because uh they tie in like some of them tie into poems that i'd written mm -hmm. like, maybe two three years before and then two three years later i realized oh that could be a song yeah and so you, there's some of those in there that kind of stuff you know the song lyric versus the poem right 
you know, you be the judge. Yeah. And, uh, and what's Were fun, you? my poetry is actually, you know, after studying um, poetic forms when I was in college, um, as soon as I got out of college, I started writing songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, my poetry went, it's almost newspaper. It's almost journalism. It, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's sort of a, the, 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 the teachers I had, that's kind of how they wrote. And that's kind of mm-hmm. taught me to write. Uh, I had some teachers named, a great teacher named Gerald Lachlan. And he and Bukowski, Charles Bukowski, were like close friends. And No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. That is so fucking cool. Did he tell you stories about Bukowski? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, sure. Wow. Oh, my <laughs> I mean, God. I saw Bukowski read back in the 70s, man. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He First time I saw him read, which was the best time, hmm. was before he you know, became Charles Bukowski. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, he was reading at this little bar in Long Beach, California, called the, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it, you know, it was a beatnik bar. And um, uh, a surfer beatnik bar called the West Coast Bodega. Ooh. And uh, Bukowski would go in there like on Thursday nights mm-hmm. and just get up on, you know, almost like open mic, except it would be Charles Bukowski doing poetry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's the first time I saw him. That was about 1974. Wow. Wow. 75, maybe. He's yeah. incredible, man. Yeah. Yeah, he was that that version of Bukowski was amazing, you know. Yeah. I spent my childhood sneaking into uh, blues blues bars and jazz bars as a little kid. Wow. And uh, that was one of the closest white guys <laughs> that was ever as cool. Right. As yeah. the old black bluesman. You know? Right, right. This thing, you know, just about a white guy could get. He's yeah, his life was incredibly interesting. And I mean, he came up with a lot of like, it, it's funny when you read about how he kind of came up and, and, and who he was and what got him directly into writing and stuff like that. I kind of can see what, like some of the things he was feeling when he was writing, like why, you know what I mean? Like you can kind of piece shit together and you're like, Oh, okay. This is obviously from this part of his life. This is from this experiences that he had, which is kind of funny because it's, it's hard to do that sometimes. Um, yeah, and you know, the thing that he had, uh, that a lot of both his detractors and his idolaters confused mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is he did have that little spark of genius. Yes. And um, um, that's why he could write about some things that he wrote about. And then at the end of the poem or the end of the story, there'd be this little twist yeah. that, uh, that would mark, oh, this guy's a real fucking poet. You know? Right. And uh, were a lot of his copy copiers, you know, because he had guys that, you know, I'm trying to make this nice. Um, Don't worry about it. Go I for it. Have, I may have been one myself. Hmm. If you, um, they were going for the image as opposed to the poetry. Yes. And when you read his, um, the stuff that he wrote before he passed away, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the middle stuff I don't care for. Like, uh, um, it, it just, it was, he was playing up the image of Charles Bukowski. Absolutely. If you add all the poems together, nobody, there was not that many nights in his life for him to get drunk. Yes, you know, exactly. Women in the world for him to have slept with. Right. So a lot of it was, you know, he was creating this larger in life image, which is great, you know. Mm-hmm. But 
um, a lot of his followers um, tried to follow that and not follow the poetry. Yeah. You know, kind of like, you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix. I was lucky to see when I was 12, 12 and a half or so. Wow. Mom drove me and a couple of my friends two times to see Jimi Hendrix live. And uh, with the exception of one or two little things here and there, I've never tried to be Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) (laughs) Never tried to play like Jimi Hendrix. I've never tried to, you know, dress like Jimi Hendrix, act like Jimi Hendrix. But in in the same way I wanted to be the great blues man, Lightning Hopkins, I realized right away, well, I never can, and I never can be Jimi Hendrix. I can take elements of that. And in like the case of Hendrix, it was the, uh, you never knew what he was going to do. Right. My my big boredom with pop music today is uh, it's so uh, choreographed. Yep. Says they're choreographed and all. I'm really sick of robotic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm sick of even in rock bands, it's all choreographed as to, okay, this is your guitar solo. You stand here because we got the light and it's going to hit you there. And you're going to for 18 bars and then you're going to back up and then the light's going to go on the lead singer. And, you know, I mean, that's fine. It's showbiz, it's Broadway. Right. Yeah. But it's not, to me, that's not rock and roll. And with Jimi Hendrix, uh-uh. You know? Yeah. Like, no, yeah. going to go over here now, and you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. You're going to go over here, and he's going to play this now. Mm-hmm. You don't know what he's going to do. Right. And, uh, you know, in the same way, you know, you go see Bob Dylan, you have no idea what you're going to get. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time it's something different. And, um, and so you try to take that elements of that in my career, you know, um, not equating myself with them, but that's kind of what I learned from guys like that was, well, you know, uh, early on, you know, the Blasters, when we started, we were basically a blues, blues R&B band. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, because of our pompadours and leather jackets and this and the other, we got like, oh, they're a rockabilly band or they're, they're a cow punk band or they're this or they're that. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and so throughout my career, not that I haven't, I don't distance myself from that at all. But on the other hand, that's not all. You know, you, I just go yeah. and do whatever I want. I mean, the last record I made was a psychedelic record. You know, yeah. a lot of people liked and a lot of people didn't. So, right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, do you feel like, do you, you know, how much of the audience, so to speak, do you take into your own work? I mean, do you, do you, do you just go, look, I'm going to do what makes me happy. If they dig it, if they like it, that's great. And that's it. Like it is, I feel like that's the, you know, I didn't need to make a plug on the, on your show. <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever you want man but yeah is it like that because here you know what i was going to ask you too about this book though did you find new connections with your work and with stuff and, and with the writing that you had done as you were putting this all together not really because um i carry all the songs with me oh nice they're, they're all up here and they're all they're all here even the ones you know people think that i don't think about you know right um there you know i wrote them all and and i'm a slow writer <clears throat> very slow songwriter um and so i spend months on songs mm-hmm. and um you know with a few exceptions and you know they're all etched in my brain so right um, no I, i'm pretty i'm pretty well aware you know of how everything fits sure together. that's awesome what how long would you say was it like because you were talking about you know you you 
never really tried to be like Jimi Hendrix or you, you did, but you knew you were never going to be them or whatever. We all kind of emulate people when we start out. How long would you say in your career did you realize who you were on stage, off stage when you were writing? Like, how did you, when did you find your self identity? Really not until around 1994. Okay. Wow. To be honest. No. Um, I did an album called King of California that was a, a, you know, more or less acoustic album. Mm -hmm. And that was. Love that album. Oh, thanks. Mm. And uh, so do I. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that was the first time I, I really learned how to sing. Okay. Own songs. Uh, I had never sung in my life. And again, what would happen, you know, 15 years before in the blasters was I would write a song. We'd go to rehearsal. I'd play the song. Uh, band would either say it sucks. We're not going to play it. Or they'd mm. say, okay play it again and then you play it again and again and again and so I'd sing it about eight times mm -hmm. then my brother yeah. Phil who was a brilliant fucking vocalist would start singing it right that was it I'd never sang the song again you know wow it was like okay it's yours now Phil and so when I went solo uh if you want to call it that when I stumbled into a solo career mm -hmm. um you know, I went the first solo record I made you know, I would love to reissue it uh, without the vocals. Uh, <laughs> I would love uh, to. It was a great band. I had a great band. Yeah. But, uh, just the tracks, you know, that's all you need. And right. because the producer, my dear friend Steve Berlin, uh, he and the engineer figured to get over my shyness as a singer, let's get him drunk on vodka and beer. <laughs> <laughs> and do all the vocals in one night. Oh, my God. There's one song on the album. Uh, that's the live vocal, and then mm -hmm. the rest are all the 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 the, uh, the vocals on the album. You can chart how drunk I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! When I listen to my first solo album, I just get like, oh god, what a hangover that was! Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, um, I'd heard worse. <laughs> 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 I think we're singers. You know, hell, they got careers. Why not? Absolutely. Me? Yeah. Um, I'm going to name drop here. Um, it's a complicated story that I'll make really simple. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a song called Fourth of July, and uh, and there was Nick Lowe, the great producer, songwriter, singer, nice. everything, um, was going to produce this album. I'd already left the Blasters, but I was going to write the songs for a Blasters album, because they were my hometown guys I grew up with. Yeah. I was already in X, but I said, okay, I'll write you some songs. But then one of the reasons I left the Blasters was I had written all the songs that my brother and I could share, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> if you're writing songs for Streisand, you're going to sit down and say, okay, what do me and Barbara Streisand have in common? Right. And then you're going to figure it out, and then you write a song, you know? And I've done that with my brother for three albums, and you know, I kind of might have written ourselves out of here, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I just decided, okay, I'll write songs for me, and maybe Phil can sing. <clears throat> and so Nick Lowe, like I said, was on board to produce this thing. And so I go to Nick's, he flew up from London, and I go to his hotel room, and I play him Fourth of July. And the first thing he says is, your brother can't sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? He's got to. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just wrote it for them. And he said, oh, no, no, he's, he's a rhythm and blues singer. That's not a rhythm and blues song. And I argue and say, yes, it is. It's I'm trying to write a Curtis Mayfield song. You know, it's going. Yeah. 
you know, we're going back and forth. And then Nick finally says, that's your song. You have to sing it. That's, that song's written for your voice. And I said, but, you know, he said, I'll tell you what, we'll go in the studio and cut you singing it. And I was like, but Nick, I, I, I don't sing. And Nick Lowe gave me the greatest bit of career advice. He said, well, I can't either, but I've made a wonderful career at it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been, you know, through all the ups and downs of my of my uh, professional career, it's always I always go back to Nick Lowe just saying, well, I can't either, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's the best, man, when you get advice from somebody, especially somebody you respect, who, like, gives yeah. you a little inside info, and they're like, neither can I, but fuck it, go anyway. Yeah. 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 That's the best. That's always the best advice I got doing stand-up. Somebody once told me uh, uh, mediocrity inspires. And I was just like, I didn't quite understand. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and then I would like watch somebody on a late night set kind of just fucking be kind of okay. And you're like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can fucking, I can do that. That's fine. How much is he making? Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's not yeah, I, I'm more of the, uh, I, I understand. I'm more of the, uh, I get inspired like terribleness or <laughs> shit in, is i find shit inspirational like mm -hmm. um you know i'll read somebody's uh poem or whatever or song and i'll just go oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got two or three songs of mine that i'm a little like mm -hmm. oh, i hear you mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah um, but do you think that's you being too critical no okay <laughs> 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 i hear their songs really no one knows. One of which has never been released. Oh. That will never be released. That I wrote for the Blasters that we recorded with the Blasters, and it is the absolute worst song. Wow! By anyone, anywhere. But sometimes I'll hear somebody's poem or song or something, or let's go. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Really? yeah. yeah. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I. 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 You know, uh, greatness can be inspirational and. Yeah, mediocre mediocrity can and just flat out being terrible can be inspiration. Absolutely, All right? No, I agree. And it, what was when you were going? Because uh, you you grew up in Downey, California, right? Yeah. Okay, I, that was the last place I lived before I left California. Um, what? And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wound up. I because when I first moved <laughs> when I first moved out to California, I lived in Studio City. When when what? it was 20 end of 2016 beginning oh of 2017 god. yeah oh my god yep and i uh i live because when i first moved out to california i lived in studio what city what do you say was a woman involved in the beginning yeah 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 absolutely uh and then i lived in, in studio city then i lived in universal city then i lived with my then i lived in my car for two days that was fun um everybody's got one of those stories where they stay in your, i didn't really live in it but i did sleep in it for a couple days and underneath the ralph's uh uh parking garage because <laughs> i was like this seems safe um and then uh, <laughs> and, um and then i lived in san clemente for a little bit uh with my in my crashed on my cousin's couch out there and then, but it was too far to drive from like out, like to keep going back to my life. And then I went to a real estate person, like, and I was like, 
I don't know where to go. Like you got to find some, I, I literally was like, I had no idea where the fuck to go. Um, and my cousin was just like newly married and his wife is kind of like, you need to get the fuck out. <laughs> it's like, and I was like, that seems about fair. Um, because we were, you know, but I, but then I went to her and she was just like, Oh, there's, I, I actually, she's like, I don't have any place you can afford. Cause I was broke flat fucking broke um and then she was like but uh i know a guy and it, which is never a good sign but she was like i do i know a guy in downey and i didn't know what and i was just like that sounds i was like oh karen carpenter i think is from <laughs> that was all i knew at the time and i was just like that sounds great and then and then i lived there and i didn't realize it was the hottest fucking place <laughs> and he had no he had no fucking ac in in like in like whatever you guys call whatever they called like the i don't know i don't even know what it was i forget what they fucking called it but i was like sir can you please turn the ac on and he's like well, no, we have a fan it's just like a fan you know and i'm like that's a true downy guy right there yes dude this guy was like pure downy like he Most would Oh, what the fuck was his name? I can't think of his name. I, mean, I hadn't he, lived there. I hadn't lived in Downey since 1980, but you never. Oh, okay, you never know. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, his dad lived there before him. His mom lived in a little house in the back, like he had, like he had bought like this land, so he had his own oh, house. Jack, what'd you say? Sheila and Jack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was he was <clears throat> he was an interesting dude. He one day ran out into the backyard. All I all I knew was I had my room door open, which I rarely ever did, but I saw him dart through the house with a gun, fire it into the sky, and I was just like, What what the what the fuck was that? And he was just like, Squirrels, man. <laughs> I was just like, Wait, okay. I'm gonna give you initials. Was her was his initials DC? Ooh, uh, I don't. Maybe I don't know. I really I have to look him up. I have to look him up. Why? W E. W E. Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. DC W E. I have so, to look it up. I'm just thinking of the guys that I still know in Downey that are like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> he was. He belonged to. I performed uh, at his lodge. Which they was which more of an indoctrination, by the way. Like it was me doing stand up, and they it was a good time. Everybody had a good time, but like in back of the biggest fucking American flag you've ever seen in your life, and <laughs> and all men, uh, <laughs> and they're on Firestone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That was it. Yeah. Not not a bad. And I used to ride the. I don't know why I'm telling you about my life. I used to. <laughs> I, don't right. know how, I was literally getting somewhere with the Downey thing, and then I'm like, and by the way, because this was, I, I used to ride down the river. Um, you know yes. where the, the river, yeah, yeah. So I used to ride my bike all the way down there to like, Long like thirty some miles. Um, <laughs> but no one told me there were like real cowboys over there. So I'm riding my bike, and all of a sudden, on the left hand side of me, there's just a fucking horse, and and I'm just like cool and then there's a guy behind him trying to get his horse and i was just like do you want me to stop or but it was just like this horse was just riding alongside me when i was like riding my bike it was wild coyotes and yeah, shit. all right so you were that's the la river you're gonna get mm -hmm. more cowboys on that so you were yeah i know those i don't know those guys personally but I know, mm -hmm. I know oh, cool. yeah Downey was the kind of place um when i was a little kid uh in the 50s uh, when i was like you know i was born in 55 um it was still semi-rural hmm. and I have memories of people riding horses on the street. And uh, of course we had orange groves everywhere. And, uh, and then one day in about the mid sixties, you woke up and it was all gone. Oh, wow. 
And uh, so, but it still had elements of that, you know. Mm. Um, the piano player for the Blasters was a guy named Gene Taylor, and where Gene lived, uh, it's now the 605 freeway, but yep. when he was a kid, it, he lived on a farm. And it was uh, it was a citrus farm, and it was uh, his. Uh, he lived with his grandmother, and it was an old, you know, wooden farmhouse from the you know the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some orange trees, lemon trees, avocados, peach, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so yeah. we had a lot of that growing up, and there was also so that filtered into a lot of my uh, imagery and my music, you know. Mm-hmm. People yeah. go to Downey now, and they're like, "Huh? What?" Are you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, now it's more famous as the home of the world's ugliest ugliest mansions. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was somebody else. Someone that too. It was. I was a. It was a hard time getting people to come back to Downey. I'm not gonna lie to you. Like when I was in when I any anytime I was performing anywhere else, and kind of like I live in Downey. If you want to come, and they were like, we're good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, no, it, it's um the southeast side of Los Angeles County hmm. is its own world. Yeah, you know, it was. It was a blue collar world. Even the nicest parts of it, yes, were still blue collar nice. You know, yeah, um, like like the carpenter's house. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was like sort of like the 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 downy version of Graceland. You know, um, yeah, describe it. Yeah, lived anywhere. You know, right. maybe if she would have got out of Downey, mm-hmm. psychologically, I don't know. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it so the southeast side, Pico Rivera, Bellflower, Bell Gardens, Bell, Cudahy, Maywood, um, Southgate, Compton, Linwood, uh, Paramount, North Long Beach. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, did I say Pico Rivera, Whittier, you know, yep, that area, all that area down there is a different world. And, and like with the blasters, when we were trying to get gigs. In the early days, we used to call it the the the, the wall of the harbor freeway, because mm-hmm. the harbor kind of separates the west side of LA from the east side of LA. Right. And and I'll be you know it was extremely extremely difficult to get over that wall and get gigs at the Whiskey A Go Go or the Starwood or places like that that were yeah really happening places Madame Wong's places like that in those days right um, yeah. because we were you know, I I was the guy that was the booking agent, or the, you know, I would take the little cassette tape. Yeah, you know, we got a band, and we play <laughs> rockabilly and blues and stuff, and, and we're from Downey, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, nobody cool really had ever come from Downey, and and right. um, and so it was, um, you know, years later after we were established on the scene and all that, we helped out this this group of friends of ours named Los Lobos because they had the same problem. You know, they were yes. from the side and they couldn't get over the, the great wall of the Harbor Freeway, you know, because the West right. of LA, as you know, having lived in both, mm-hmm. having lived in Studio City and Downey, yeah. it's two different worlds, man. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. I love Los Lobos, by the way. They're great. Oh, I do um, too. <clears throat> yeah, that's, it. was your like family i mean obviously it's you and your brother but like was anybody else uh in the entertainment industry musically inclined when you were growing up uh well depend on how much my dad drank <laughs> <laughs> it really did and, um my my old man was from my mom was a fourth generation californian so mm-hmm. i'm a fifth generation 
And um, my old man, though, was from South Bend, Indiana. He was a Polish kid. First line, he was born in South Bend in like 1916 in the, uh, you know, they had all the neighborhoods, you know, be Poles here, Czechs here, Germans here, Blacks here, Jews here, you know. You know yeah, every, yeah. And, um, and so his first language is Polish. And he, you know, basically an immigrant kid. Mm-hmm. And he rode the rails out to California in the Depression. Wow. And um, so I was brought up with that as well as my mother's, you know, sort of California-centric view of, of the world. And I forget what the question was. Oh, but it was, oh, <laughs> I was asking if anybody was like musically inclined in your oh, family. Well, or... yeah. Oh, before, before he came out to California, there used to be a show on the radio in the 30s called the Major Bose Talent Show. Hmm. And Major Bose was the pre-forebearer uh, of the Ted Mac Amateur Hour, which of course is the 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 predecessor of America's Got Talent or okay. American yeah. Idol or th- those kind of dubious shows. Sure. And my old man, though, he, he and like three guys in South Bend had a group that they called the Ramblin' Boys. Ooh. They were a vocal quartet. And uh, so my old man spent, they won. They didn't win first, but they like would win second consistently on. Uh, and what Major Bose would do, similar thing as, as American Idol, the racket they had going, was they would then put the people from their show out on the vaudeville circuit. Okay. And so my old man took three months on the road with the Ramblin' Boys in like 1932. And wow. so wow. throughout my musical career, my old man, you know, uh, was that a, is so fucking cool. Pretty tough guy. And yeah. he, you know, are you making any money? You know, you're uh, <laughs> like, uh, well, hold on, let me tell you what's going to break up your band. I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, back in the Ramblin' Boys. My bass player, Paul Shiznavich, uh, he had a girlfriend. You know, yeah, my three months on the road. That's all I know about the music industry. You make oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing all <laughs> That's so great. So then well, they were kind of cool with you doing your own thing, right? Yeah, well, my mom, uh, my mom more so than my dad, you know. I think mm. uh, my dad would have preferred if, um, you know, if, if I would have gotten a college degree and become a, okay. you know, history professor or something, you know, or... Mm. He would have been happy if I would have been a used car salesman, actually. <laughs> but, uh, it was when they started doing, I remember it was a big moment in my life. It was in the 90s when, you know, they'd already been destroying, you know, labor unions and this and the other. And then mm-hmm. they started. So, you know, if you had a blue collar job, it wasn't, you weren't sure if you're ever going to have the longevity that your father had had or your grandfather had had. And then right. you hear show them suddenly. Now they figured out, oh, we can get rid of the white collar guys too. And so they started doing that. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget it was a big moment sitting at my dad's kitchen table in Downey and my old man saying, you know, David, you may have gotten to the right bracket. <laughs> That's great. You can't trust these bastards at all. They'll get rid of everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Finally get slapped yeah. off. Yes. <laughs> my mom had been a um um you know, she grew up in an area um, called the San Joaquin Valley, and she was from a little town called Reedley, which is about 35 miles southeast of uh, Fresno. Okay. okay. Right there in Glamour Central. And, um, and you know, she dreamed of, of big things, you know. She, mm-hmm. 
she when they her family in the depression moved down to um, Southern California and um, she wanted to be a, a dancer this and the other and um, my mom was a contortionist wow wow yeah my mom could do very cool we never knew that growing up until I was about 18 when finally somebody brought over some old photographs of her from like 1932 you know oh my god and my mom's bent you know <laughs> yeah and you're just looking at the mother you know <laughs> <laughs> and so she uh, she did she worked a little small time vaudeville herself you know mm -hmm. and um and so she was always very supportive actually of my brother and me um because um you know it, it was a it was kind of her lifelong dream was to be on stage and so you know um when I was That's a little cool. kid, when I was a little boy, she tried to get me to do dancing lessons, and I was, of course, really <laughs> <laughs> regret it now. <laughs> right? Yeah. I yeah. can't dance for shit. <laughs> oh man, I everybody. I was talking to somebody the other day about, um, you know, I don't know, like the fifties and maybe even forties, fifties, whatever. If you were an entertainer, you could sing, dance, tap dance, act. Like yeah. I, those guys, I'm always stunned, yeah. man. Any anytime you see any of those guys back in the day. They could do all that shit, and I'm the same way. Where you're just like, I've got one thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can do, and it barely. Yeah, yeah. Bob, Hope, Bob Hope and Cross Bellows guys. Yeah, what do you need me to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wild. I don't even know what the difference was. Where you're just like, they just have it in them. It's nuts. Yeah, I think somebody was talking well, about Danny Kaye. It's just training, you know. It's like the yeah. Motown acts. You know, Marvin Gaye could certainly sing, and he played right. a couple instruments. Or the Temptations could certainly sing. And who would they have? The guy uh, who was the choreographer, famous. Uh, uh, oh, um, John C. Billups, but that's hmm. a basketball player, right? <laughs> that was their house choreographer that came in and taught the Temptations, you know, and everybody their steps. Yeah, you know, that they sang and they danced. It was all. Yeah, um, yeah it was a yeah. different different show business we're just lazy bums now oh totally oh my god even more so it's funny that's another thing too is I, the mystery of not knowing what your parents were like is totally gone with our generation like my 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 especially mine mine's fucking shot like you know you said you, you somebody had to bring over a photo from your mom in the 30s if they never did that you would have never known they wouldn't have said anything yeah. now it's like you know it's like that norm mcdonald joke where you're like you want to see ten thousand photos of my grandfather <laughs> it's like flipping through fucking it's and it's endless no one's gonna wonder what we and they're gonna be like why were you taking so much pictures of food that's fucking weird you're like, grandpappy like to eat Ouch. <laughs> it's just stupid but that's that's so fucking cool do you remember a point in time where like um you were you know in your career and your parents got to come out and see you and you felt like you'd make like secure you know what i mean like just secure and everything you mean financially secure no i mean like 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 parental, um parental approval parental approval yeah maybe yeah. like talent yeah oh man i my in regards to my mother um you know my brother and i i mean if we played a high school dance <laughs> uh, she was just like oh yeah that's yeah. great you made it yeah. little dance you know right um but my mom the, the, we were playing i know a big night for her she died relatively young she died in 1984 when she was um, oh wow yeah she was younger than i am now which right uh but i was born really yeah wow 1984 you look good Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
would be like 1981. She came, um, you know, people aged differently then. Yeah. Mother, yeah. You know, again, childhood depression, all that. She and her older sisters definitely looked, they didn't look like we look at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. Right. And, uh, so they were, but especially my Aunt Honey and my Aunt Margaret were probably in their late 70s at this point. And they came to the Whiskey A Go Go. We were playing the whiskey in 1981. And this was in the days when, uh, you know, people were flying through the air and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. beer bottles are flying and spit and fights and, you know, and, and so my mom and her sisters show up at the whiskey go, go. <laughs> and we had told the, the doorman security guy, look, our mom's coming. She's going to, yeah, we could, yeah, you know, so they, they got her, somebody had taken the table, of course, mm -hmm. the, that aside for him. Right. And so then this guy gets up and very gallantly says, would you ladies care to join me at my table? And he sat them down, entertained them, sat with them all night. And they were like, oh, that's that's my boys up there, you know. Mm -hmm. well, you're very talented, blah, blah, blah. And then the next day, my mom calls me and says, you know, that was a really good show. And we sat all night with John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Holy shit! <laughs> so, wow! You know, I'm not big on Scientology, but yeah, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll give him a pass. He was nice to my mom. You know? Absolutely, man. Yeah. yeah, and way to bury the lead for her. She was like, "Good, good yeah. show." And by yeah. the way, oh my god, he's phenomenal! Nice. He's a very nice boy, that Travolta. Wow, that is very sweet. It is kind of I, I felt I saw Top Gun the second movie, and I was like, I know Tom Cruise is a crazy fucking Scientologist, but that guy can make a movie. <laughs> it's like I'm like, you know, I guess if he wants to lure people into his cult, go for it. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> I, I never saw the first, so I won't see the second. You know, wow, you, really? Can I, can I tell yeah, you something? I'm, I, I'm, you know, when all those movies came out, I was such. Um, I still am. Um, you know, I, I'm a snob, you know, I hear you. I like, uh, you know, um, and I'm at that age where I've just, you know, I've just had cancer for two and a half years right, and right. I'm at that point where it's like, okay, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time I, I hear you. watch your movie unless, you know, I like John Houston movies, you know? Oh Yeah. Great like, movies. Yeah, I like stuff like that. I like, uh, you know, uh, um, so in the in the in that sort of '80s, '70s, '80s thing when I was mm -hmm. uh, more of a, a drinker and more of a wild man and all that, I I never saw Star Wars. Wow. I never saw any of the Star Wars. The only time I ever saw Star Wars movies was when I was on tour and on a plane. Yeah, uh, yeah. See what this is all about, you know? Which I don't think it's how. Lucas intended it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, right. and probably you, you probably don't want to watch a, a movie where people are getting shot down out of the sky and, <laughs> while you're in the sky. Just my, you know, <laughs> like I don't. Yeah, know, I, I, I never saw ET, and I never saw oh. um, Dirty Dance. I never saw Flash Dance. I never saw any of that shit. You wow! Know? Oh my it's, god! Um, it's just like it doesn't interest me. You know, I don't. Um, blame yeah. I'll, I'll clue you in on the first Top Gun movie. It's just B-roll for jets. Like, that. <laughs> like To this day, I couldn't tell you what the plot was. I have no fucking clue. I've seen it yeah. a million times. I know it's got a nice soundtrack. Yeah, there uh, you go. There Jennifer you go. Connelly's hot. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Oh, she's fucking gorgeous. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Still is. Still is. And then also back then. Yeah. 
yeah so that was but that's it i don't know but that's impressive he does things about endless trains across (laughs) 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 i'm gonna watch that show but i see the ads and it's like really yes (laughs) absolutely oh my god (laughs) this show has got to the point where they're on a train they can't get off you know (laughs) (laughs) on a train (laughs) 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 and i like she's a great you know and i feel sorry for you know, I have friends that are actors and actresses. I just mm-hmm. feel sorry for them because yeah. uh, we all, everybody plays bad gigs. Yes. Yeah. Know? Absolutely. But repeated and repeated and repeated, you know, endlessly. Yeah. You know, contracted uh, to do it. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, if I play a bad gig in Sioux Falls on a Sunday night, I forget about it two days yeah. later. Yeah. You're gone yeah. by Monday morning and that's it. Yeah, and if you do a movie about a, a talking space chimp trapped on a train in a snowstorm, <laughs> you're living with that. You know? <laughs> How did you know that I was writing that one? I didn't know I got to cross that off my list. I can't, can't do that movie anymore. Johnny <laughs> <laughs> John. What? So, what did you do during the? If you if you're not binging or rewatching movies, what were you doing during lockdown and stuff? Did you? What? Because uh, I was doing chemotherapy and radiation. That'll that'll take up some time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll it do was, it. Um, it was uh, the best time, mm. uh, you know. To to, uh, to paraphrase Charles Dickens, it was the best of times. It was the worst. Of times. <laughs> yeah, the best time to be sick. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, because I couldn't play gigs. So okay, let's have cancer now. Absolutely. Um, and then it was the worst time. Yeah, because I had cancer. And, right. Uh, um, you look good, dude. And complete okay. remission now. Yeah. You, well, yeah, you know, you don't. I don't want to use that word. I hear you. Not going wood, right? I hear you. Uh, it could. I. It could be in me now. Sure. You never know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it. It. I was declared cancer-free last year, and then, um, and this is true. <laughs> literally, a month later, they were telling me I had a year to live. Oh what? my god! Yeah, <laughs> it gets wild, man. This is this is the shit from the memoir. It's not going to be punk rock, this or blues that. It's going to be here's yeah. here's what the medical industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, make a long story short. Yeah, they 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 diagnosed one thing correctly had returned, and they yeah. misdiagnosed another thing. So then they made me do four months of chemotherapy for a cancer that I didn't have. Oh, oh my god! god. Yeah. Really and that's when I decided to. Uh, Keep my keep you know grow my hair out long, partially yeah. as a pandemic thing and partially as a fuck you cancer thing. Yeah, and absolutely. I did. Then they said, "Well, you're gonna lose your hair," and I was like, "Well, we're not really sure that I have this other cancer that's gonna." Well, we think it's best that you do it, and you're gonna lose your hair. And I was just like, "Fuck you, I am not." Right. And, and I'd lost some, but no. Oh. But I did four months of chemo for a cancer I didn't have. So wow. So when you say in remission, um, you know, um, yeah, yeah, say that you know, it's a fight every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a, I have like I had three people that really helped me through my cancer shit. One was my sister, who uh, is a uh, uh, a cancer survivor, twice breast cancer, Uh and she runs um, therapy groups for cancer patients and survivors and this and the other. And um, and then there was uh, a woman named uh, um, well I won't say her name um, 
but she had exactly what I had, which was right. stage four colorectal that had metastasized into other other parts of the body. Right. And then she had they had told her, they had told her, you know, make out your will. And then she had gone through certain treatments with this great doctor, and she was recovered and she was fine. And then the my other third person was a close friend of mine named Stanley Wyckoff, who was an in, interesting songwriter, and he had survived stomach cancer like 10 years before. And so they were the people that were like, okay, they're gonna tell you this, you wanna do that, you wanna, if they tell you this, do this and do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, this is bullshit, this is what you wanna do. Wow. If they tell you this, do exactly what they say, you know? Don't Google this, you know, don't Google <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so th those are like my three rock of Gibraltars. And so then when I was told earlier this year, about that was about two and a half months ago that I was cancer free finally, officially. Nice. And uh, and then the woman who had, had exactly what I had, who had, was in remission, and it was four and a half years in remission. Hers came back. Oh man! Stanley, uh, literally the next day he died. Oh, oh, oh man. my goodness! So sorry to get it. Return, and he died. And mm. they come back late. They diagnosed it like a month. For. so i don't you know you just kind of like, sure stay on the fence yeah yeah you know um the other day i got in my car and i had on the serious radio and it was the mojo nixon show and uh and i turn on and mojo's an old friend and all oh that. nice and i turn on the radio and i could hear one of my songs fading out and then mm. mojo comes on as soon as i'm in the car and, and this was after the rolling stone little article that come out about being cancer and, mm -hmm. and so the mojo was like dave alvin dave alvin kick cancer's ass i'm like say that. <laughs> we don't want cancer to know that i kicked its ass <laughs> and we're just gonna like pray to whatever powers the universe has mm -hmm. that it doesn't yeah. come back but it could it could be back now i don't know God. right right and um you know so yeah, I feel great, you know, and you look uh, great. Yeah, you look sound good, dude. You know, you you you, um, you uh, uh, without sounding corny, um, I'm really supposed to be dead. And um, before the the reason they found out I had cancer was I went in I, somewhere out on the road, I got sepsis. Oh, and wow. I refused to go to the hospital for that because I just figured it was something that'll pass. Mm -hmm really it almost killed me and i wound up in the hospital for like nine days with that and that's how they found the cancer blah 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 wow sepsis should have killed me the cancer should have killed me and uh so without sounding too corny now even the shitty days are great yeah yeah They're, they really are i i am that guy now Come on. <laughs> Come on. Let's go swimming down the swimming pole. You know? Yeah. Because <laughs> it is. It's like flowers. Oh, look at those. Man, I always thought those were pretty, but man, those are really fucking pretty, you know? Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, it's, I've got these shows coming up, and, and it's kind of like a way of me testing the, uh, testing what I'm physically capable of after surgery you know three different surgeries and two rounds of chemotherapy and one round of radiation and all that kind of jazz and uh and but it's also you know hey these could be the last ones yeah yeah, yeah.
if COVID doesn't screw everything up and fuck it up and exactly uh, as you were worried about, but yeah, Yeah. really like every fucking note now matters. Absolutely. It's interesting what, what you wound up appreciating during certain life events, but also the same thing with like COVID, like having all that shit taken away. I mean, it just takes that one time for something that you're, you're, you've taken advantage of to kind of, not be there for a little bit and you're like holy shit i need to treasure every minute of this yeah even yeah even the back kids you know you said you were a fan of writer do you like kurt vonnegut yeah okay there's a great quote by him i have it um i keep it on the bag that i use to travel with all over the place i had it engraved on this leather uh duffel bag that i have and it's a great quote man it's what you were talking about and it's an um I urge you to notice when you're happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Yeah, exactly. I try to, th- try to think <laughs> about that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what you were just saying. Yeah, he had a he had um, not that long before he died, maybe about two years or so before he died. Mm-hmm. And I'm lighting this in tribute to Vonnegut. Not, very nice. <laughs> Love it. He was on a TV show and he lit up a cigarette. And he said, you know, I'm suing the cigarette corporations, the tobacco corporations. And the host was, oh, that's great. That's great. That's wonderful. You know, he goes, yeah, I've been smoking since I was 15 years old, you know, and now I'm 84 years old. And so I'm suing the tobacco companies. And the guy said, that's great. What are you, what are you suing them for? He says, because I'm not dead yet. Right here. <laughs> and I'm not dead. I'd like to be dead. Thank you. <laughs> he, had a, he had a wonderful, nice, dark sense of humor. Yeah, he did. Oh, that's so yeah. great. I never knew that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, what was would you... Stewart, actually. So it, was be... John, it was The Daily Show? Yeah. Yeah, my... man. I remember that interview. I thought that sounded familiar. Yeah. I, I was just at the uh, premiere of the Car- Carlin documentary, the George Carlin one. I don't yeah. know if you saw that yet. Yeah, and... I did. Oh, so good. And they mentioned Vonnegut. John Stewart mentioned Vonnegut in that in that because he said the two of them were very much alike, and they're kind of uh, almost like pragmatic nihilism. You know what I mean? Where they were just like, "What you saw is what you get." They had an optimism about. The, they were just disappointed in the world. Yeah, yeah, and it's well, crazy. Think, uh, yeah, for different reasons. Yeah, well, yeah. but yeah, for different roads led them to the same place. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Vonnegut always kind of reminded me of my old man. Um, nice. My man was uh, was in the Signal Corps in World War II. Wow. And he'd been in North Africa. He'd been at, at D-Day. He'd been in at Battle of Bulge, and he was he was at the liberation of Dachau. Wow. Uh, and um, so his um, expectations for humanity mm. were that high, mm. you know, <laughs> what they were capable of. And yeah, with yeah. Little kids, he would tell us stories about Dachau and. And about how you could smell it five miles away. Wow. They, were, they were marching to, you know, they were told you're, you're going to this place, be prepared. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, yeah, you could smell it. And he said, so whenever the people in the town of Dachau would say, oh, we had no idea what was going on. He said, They're full of shit. Yeah. yeah. It didn't smell like a slaughterhouse. Right. It smelled like what it, what it smelled like. And, Good Lord. Um, and then, you know, when he got back from the war, you know, one thing led to another, and he became a union organizer for mm-hmm. his professional career. So in some ways, he, in the same way as Vonnegut and even Carlin, kept his idealism in the pragmatic sense. Yeah. Pragmatic nihilism. I, you know, I, 
I prefer, you know, optimistic pessimist or pessimistic optimist. Yeah, that's yeah. better. And, uh, and but my old man would be like, you know, like when I would hear Carlin, especially some of the later, the later period stuff. Was, oh, the old man's been hitting the vodka again. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, you were talking a little earlier about, um, you know, going solo and doing that kind of stuff for the first time or whatever. But you're you're also like widely known for your collaborations. Are you, do you feel yourself as more of a collaborative person? Do you enjoy being among the company of the other talented people who are writing music and, and playing music? Or do you like to be by yourself? No, I like being around people. You know, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. shy. And so playing music is a way of not being shy, you know. Nice. Um, yep. Or doing podcasts is a way of not being shy. Yeah, that's a good. If I had my choice, I'd be, you know, holed up somewhere writing. And um, uh, so, yeah, no, I, because I'm self-taught, mm -hmm. uh, I never took guitar lessons per se. When I was a little kid, you know, my brother would always have a, you know, from the time my brother was like 13, he had a great band. Always had great musicians. And where I grew up in Downey, uh, in those in those days, not in yours, but <laughs> in those days, it was full of great musicians, kid musicians. Right. There were always these older guys that were great guitar players. So I was always intimidated, and uh, to you know, but they'd leave the room, and I'd pick up their guitar, and like I'd I'd be looking when they're playing, I'd looking at their fingers. What's he doing there? What's he? And then they'd leave, and then of course I'd grab the guitar. That's oh, nice it. man. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't until I was like 17, 18 that I really tried to be a guitar player, and. Um, <laughs> I didn't really succeed until around 1994. And, um, <laughs> but because I'm self-taught, the way I learn things is from other musicians. Right. Um, and, you know, like one of my dearest friends is one of the world's greatest musicians, is a guy named Greg Lease, L-E-I-S-Z. Hmm. And uh, Greg, you will notice, on is played on every record that's been made in the past 20 years. Wow. And, um, and he grew up near me and all that and um i've learned a billion things from playing with greg he produced my can california record and he was in my solo band and but uh, he's out on tour right now with jackson brown hey greg hey jackson how you guys oh, doing nice and uh but from greg i learned a lot about suspended suspension cords all this stuff that you wouldn't learn mm -hmm. um and so you pick up little things here and there from every musician or singer or songwriter that you if you co-write with somebody sometimes i want to co-write with someone just to figure out how do you do it yeah yeah every songwriter writes differently everybody's yep. got a different process mm -hmm. so it's like, well i've got my weird little process what's yours right and uh, so uh and the same with musicians you know how, did, how do you play that yeah. oh, I don't know how you go. oh i get it i played it oh i was wrong you mm -hmm. know um like a couple weeks back i did my first gig um, uh, it was a surprise, unannounced thing over at this uh, place in Santa Monica called McCabe's, and it was oh. with Holmstrom and Gregory Boas and Steve McGowan, who are Ma uh, Mavis Staples band. Mm -hmm. Rick is yeah. one of my favorite guitar players, and he and I have talked for years about, oh, we got to play together one of these days. So he's doing a residency over at McCabe's, and he's like, why don't you come down and, you know, be Dave Alvin? And I was like, well, I think I can do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Having played, you know, in two and a half years, I've got neuropathy in my hands and feet from the from the chemotherapy, but right. I'm going to give it a shot. And so doing stuff like that, and we played for an hour and a half, you know, and that's how I learned. And so, yeah, I, I like collaborating with people. You know, when I sit down to seriously write songs, I like to do it alone. 
mm-hmm. with the exception of one or two other people that I've co-written with over the years. Nice. But playing music, yeah, it's to me, it's that's a group thing, you know. Like, right. uh, uh, I don't like, for example, I like drummers that make a lot of noise. Nice. Or, or especially yeah. in blues and, and and country music stuff like that, they don't. Right. Because it's all about in blues, particularly like for guitar players or harmonic players, it's it's all about the guitar player, the harmonica player. Mm. You just keep time. In country music, the same thing. You like the world's most boring job would be the drummer and junior player. (laughs) (laughs) It's just right. (laughs) Look, you're playing drums. Cover up my mistakes, okay? <laughs> I'm gonna go out on the edge. I don't know if I'm coming back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. And so I've been really blessed in that. In the Blasters, we had a drummer named Bill Bateman, and Bill was great at covering my mistakes. When I joined X, DJ Bonebreak was the drummer, or is the drummer, and DJ's excellent at covering mistakes. And uh, and then in my own bands, with uh, for years I had a guy named Bobby Lloyd Hicks, and Bobby Lloyd. He was his mistakes were so much grander than mine that we worked beautifully together. And wow. then the current drummer is a, is a is a great drummer named Lisa Pankratz, and she knows not only how to play drums like a pro, but she knows when I'm going to go haywire and how to go there with me. And that's what I love. I, you know, so it's it's all about collaboration. It's all about making you know the whole better than the parts. You know, that's great, yeah. man. I love that. The I actually have a question because John usually asks this, so I want to just ask this for. I know him. you're gonna, yeah. Yeah, when you write your song, do you hear melody first or do you do the words or lyrics first? I'll take them anyway. Nice. Yeah. Okay. It's some some come all at the same time. Mm. Some songs, a couple of my best songs came when I was one came when I was walking to get a hamburger. My wow. Party. Yeah. And so, but that's rare. Mm-hmm. But it does happen. There are songs that I, I'm proud of that took me three months of just writing lyrics with no melody and then trying to figure out, well, what melody goes with this? Right. There's other songs, one or two, one of my more famous songs was a song, one of the earliest songs I ever wrote was a thing called Marie Marie. And I was laying in bed um, and this melody came in my head and I grabbed the guitar and, ah, that, you know, you get mm-hmm. all I had no idea what it's about. And the next day we had, and this is early on, I think it was the fourth song I ever wrote. And uh, the next day we had blaster rehearsal and I had 20 minutes before we were leaving and I sat down and just wrote the lyrics. Nice. Wow. You know, so it just, but then others take four years. Yeah. You know, wow. I've, got, I've got some things, you know, up here that I don't know when they'll be released, you know. Yeah. And, awesome. You Creativity know. is so weird. It doesn't make any sense sometimes because there's like, it'll be, it'll be the same thing. I could write, like you know, a, a twenty-minute thing that is that is sounds like me is is exactly how I want it to sound, um, you know, and it's really funny, and I can go out and do it. And then I'll have one joke that will not work for like six fucking years, no matter how much, you know. I'll, I'll like, and then all of a sudden it'll just click, and then and like I don't even know what it was. It was so obvious, and I don't understand what my brain has been doing yeah. for the last. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but it is weird. Yeah. Yeah, creativity is is we all have, you know, everybody approaches it differently, slightly yeah. differently. Because in comedy writing and in songwriting, the similarity is there's no blueprint. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, if you're if you're building a house, you can't start with the roof. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
you know, you got to start with the foundation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But in songwriting, yeah, you can start with the roof. And yeah. You know, hey, you know what? I got a great punchline. Yep. Who the fuck is the setup? You know? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's no rules in what yeah. we do. And that's, that's also the, the intimidating and, and difficult part is you would think it's easy because there's no rules. But yeah. it's, it's, it's actually more difficult because, like I said, I like to co-write sometimes with people because I want to see how do you do it. Yes. You yes. start with, oh, you start with the foundation. Oh, how dull. Right. I start with the windows, you know. Right. <laughs> Yeah. It's relieving when you find when you figure out how other people do it too, because sometimes in the in your brain there's like a block where you're like, no, 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 no. I bet you this guy is 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 magic. And yeah. you know, and they they must they must do this weird setup and they probably yeah. got some whatever. And then you find out that they're just as bizarre as you are and they've got oh, a different technique and you know, it's yeah. freeing. It's so weird. Yeah, I have friends, uh songwriting songwriter pals that you know write every day. Mm-hmm. They write a shitty song every day, <laughs> and, and they'll say it. Yeah, I wrote a shitty song today. I'm gonna write a shitty song tomorrow. And the next one will be great, though. Yeah, and they may be right. I don't know. I don't do that. When right. I do write songs, I tend to go into songwriting mode. I go to that part of my brain that's the pure, um, more open, less censored part of my brain, and just you know, papers go everywhere. There's always a guitar nearby. If I'm if I'm with my girlfriend, Mary, or if I'm whomever I'm with, I'm not really there. You right. Know, I'm yeah. songwriter brain. You know, I'm just like, yep. you know, and people around me get pissed off because I'm rhyming everything. I'll be walking around going, yeah, moon, June, spoon, croon, uh, tune, uh, bloom. Bloom's not a word, is it? Bloom? <laughs> you know, and, um, um, you know, there was a great quote. This is sort of applicable. Um, it was an interchange between, you know the two best modern songwriters you know leonard cohen and bob dylan mm. and, and apparently uh they were pals you know sure why not right. and, <laughs> and uh you know very different cats though and mm -hmm. leonard or bob dylan asked leonard cohen you know how long did it take you to write hallelujah and leonard said you know eight years and then he said how long did it take you to write you know We'll say like a Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. oh, about twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think either one is better than the other. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's just <laughs> two extremely different ways of doing it. And I, I, I lean more towards Leonard. Mm -hmm. Regards of it, sometimes with my songs, it takes years. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said you thought of one while while walking down the street, like going to get a hamburger or whatever, because I've. I've done that where like, well, I love to bike and for some yeah. reason, and it must be like an ADD brain thing where if I, if I'm doing something else, my brain will automatically think. So when I'm biking, I'll think of like anything, create like funny shit, like whatever it is, my brain is running, but I have had to stop biking and it could have been like on a hot, you know what I mean? And like cars are like, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, and people yeah. must look at me like I'm nuts because I just stopped. You know, in the middle of a street, like you have to write everything. If you if you get, if a joke comes into your head mm -hmm. or a setup, do you have yes. to stop and write it down, or you, you can keep percolating it in your skull for an hour or two? It depends on how long I know I'm going to be out. So at this point in the game, I understand that, like, okay, if I'm within the vicinity of a notepad and I get somewhere to write it down within like that hour, I'm pretty yeah. good. Yeah. But I know if I'm going to be out longer than that, if I don't get it down, it's like the roadrunner in the cartoon when he meet meeps and then pisses <laughs> off and then there's a fucking cloud of smoke yeah. and you're like, 
where did it go? It was right here. That's that's what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I got the, the best and worst piece of songwriting advice ever mm -hmm. when I was very young. It was from a, a great blues singer by the name of Big Joe Turner. And uh, the boss of the blues and my brother Phil and I followed him around starting from when I was about 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. My brother was like 15, 16. We, we followed him from gig to gig, you know, just like because mm -hmm. he lived out here and he was generous and gregarious and, and open to us and we he was kind of like interested in us he was why you two guys you know anyway um and <laughs> when i was about 14 yeah i i was i was walking home from school and it was about three miles and i'm walking home and in that process of walking home i wrote a song for big joe turner down to the horn arrangements down to everything you know wow. i just walk along oh man this is this is great. I'm a songwriter. I'm be a songwriter. Blah, blah, blah. And then, so the next time, like a week or so later, I saw Big Joe. I said, I went up and said, Big Joe, I wrote a song for you. I wrote a song for you. You know, and, and he looked down from his magisterial heights and he said, how does it go? And I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> And then he, he gave me this advice, which was, well, if you can't remember, it ain't worth shit to begin with. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> have lived with that. Um, you know, we're a lot of songwriters. Some guys have got, you know, and gals have got home studios. You know, mm -hmm. where, wait a second, wait a second. I think I thought of the right bass note, and then they'll, they'll run across the room. And you know, I've written with people like that. And I get bored. Yeah. I'm just like, oh yeah, well, you know, I thought we were writing a song. We're doing a track. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's other people, like I said, if they have anything, they've always got the pad and paper, and they're writing down their ideas. Where I keep everything up in here. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's the bit, like I said, it's the best advice. It's the worst advice. Yeah. I would yeah. have written 800 more songs um, had I not listened to Big Joe. But on the other hand, I think I wrote some good ones because I did. Because, yeah. By the time I finally sat down and said, okay, how does Can California go? Right. I already figured it out in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, and then once you once you open up those receptors, and you know here here's where we get new age guys. Mm -hmm. Once you open up your brain to the receptors, then songs, jokes, whatever, will thoughts, everything comes in, and you don't yeah. have that that board of teenage sensors up there. Like, oh, that's really weird. Why? Yeah. Why do like jazz? I I don't jazz is stupid. Why yeah. Like, you know, and you, you can let yourself all of that stuff come in. Yeah, and absolutely. Do whatever you want, you know. It's so it's so true, man. Because even when like the the stuff that only makes it is is the stuff that is the funniest for me too. Like that's what I'll like because when I'm on stage, I've got my jokes that I definitely you know I've worked on. I know what I'm going to say, but I like to work very free form too because that's when I come up with stuff. But yeah. the only thing I remember from ad libs or or kind of working with the audience is the funniest shit. That's yeah. that will I'll find will seep its way back in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and nine times out of ten, the stuff that I do write down, I will look at like an hour later and go, "That's the dumbest fucking thing." <laughs> I can't believe I stopped traffic for that. Yeah, well, that's like writing drunk, you know, writing drunk or high. I wrote, yeah. I wrote back in the '80s. There was a there was a great songwriter named Peter Case, and Peter had a band called the Plimsolls back mm -hmm. in those days. And I love the Plimsolls, and I love Peter to this day, and he's one of our best songwriters. But we only sat down and tried to write once. And, this is back in the bad days, right? Right. Yeah. So we were at the Whiskey Go-Go or something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, man, let's go write a song. Okay. 
And Peter in those days lived up in Laurel Canyon. So we go up to this place in Laurel Canyon, little shack in Laurel Canyon, and we've got a case of beer, and Peter's got a bunch of speed. And wow. so we're there, we're you know, snorting speed, and we're writing page after page. And go, oh, <laughs> is it? And then, for, you know, the next day at about four in the afternoon, you wake up, you're really hungover, you feel terrible. Peter calls me up and goes, uh, man, I, I looked at everything we got, and uh, it's shit. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, you got to be sober, but you have to be uh, um, open. You know, I, I think some people, creative people, take drugs to open up those reception, the receptors and cut yeah. off negative voices of yeah. you know, school teachers saying, why do you want to be a songwriter? That's yeah. shit. You know, go, go change tires for a living. Yeah, so, and absolutely. Voices, sometimes I guess with drugs or alcohol. Mm. But for me, it's always been, you know, doing it, you know, not that I don't, didn't indulge in those things, but, um, yeah. but writing, you got to be kind of serious about it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Which, which is a great segue. We have a, yeah. so many questions from the audience. We have a bunch of fans that were out there. One is a good friend of the show, Scott, and he said he's from South Bend, Indiana as well. Yeah. Mm. And he, uh, he he has a couple of comments. He said, congrats to Dave for holding the record for mentioning cigarettes the most times during songwriting, including Joe Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> and he Tom also said... Tom Waits holds the record. <laughs> Tom, Tom Waits might. Yeah. That's right. It's true. And then he said uh, he'd love to hear the story behind the song Out of Control. The guy from South Bend? Yeah, that was his question. The guy from South Bend asked that. Yeah, my cousin Greg Shazewski. Out there in South Bend, um, yeah, um, that's the song about. Um, it's about a, a few people, two people really, uh, condensed into one. And uh, mm. and one was a family member who worked at the slag pit and um, um, at the Fontana steel plant. My old man was an organizer for the steelworkers union, so I spent time in Fontana uh, because little. People outside of Southern California and California in general don't know that we used to be a big steel state, and there were yeah. steel mills all over California, and um, and the Fontana plant was huge, and um, and then um, and it was sort of you know, sort of the same as in in Pennsylvania or something. It was the whole town was mm -hmm. the, the the Bethlehem steel plant, right? And uh, or what was it? No, it wasn't. No, it was a uh, Kaiser, and um, um, when the when they closed down the 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 uh, the what? steel mill down there, that was it mm -hmm. for the town. And now the town is, um, um, you know, it's all just tract homes where they used wow. to be the blast furnace and the slag heap. But it for like twenty some years, it just fucked over that the economy of that whole area. And it left this that area of California. It, it's pretty meth-addled, you know. It's pretty much meth country. Right. And, and, um, so it's I always intro that song as being you know the existentialist blues because that's really what it is, you know. And yeah. so people, when you take away people's uh, livelihoods yeah. and the reasons, you know, like well, my old man worked in that steel mill. And I guess I'm gonna, you know. Right. And, yeah. My brother did for a while. Uh, my brother Phil worked in it for a while, and um, um, you take that away, and if you don't give them something else, you, you 
for, for a lot of people who are motivated enough to say, okay, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to Las Vegas and become a, a, a you know, a, a gambler. I'll become a yeah. crap dealer. Crap yeah. I'll become yeah. a dancer, you know, whatever your dream are. But a lot of people are left behind. And that song sort of about the people that are left behind in, in the wake of economic, well, we don't want to get too heavy here. No, <laughs> no, no this is all good. Yeah, to it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Hope that That's great. Yeah, yeah, that was a yeah. great question. And then tangled, tangled up in blue, nineteen eighty four. He's from Ohio. Learned of Dave through following Bob Dylan and Justified. Did that exposure from them help help your career? Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. See, that was yeah. a much easier one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it certainly did. Justified, you know, anytime, you know, they had come to me, uh, the producer slash writer had come to me um, and said, you know, hey, you have a song for us? And yeah, I kind of did. I had a thing laying around and I just put it together and, and cut it. And then they said, oh, we're going to put it in the show. So then not only they put it in the show, they decided, oh, we're going to have Dave sing it. And then out of the blue, um, uh, Timothy Oliphant and I forget the actress's name. They started riffing on my name. Oh, honey, but Dave Alvin's going to start playing. You know, I was gonna, I'm like, oh, nice. I didn't pay him a cent, man. You know, I didn't. <laughs> so it was really nice to have. Um, you know, yeah, you you can't beat that kind of thing. And then and then, uh, um, you know, uh, it's for acts like me. It's really difficult to get TV exposure. Yeah, because yeah. I was never famous enough to be an oldies act. And uh, and I was never um, I'm not cute enough to be you know that kind of act you know <laughs> and, uh, I'm not Harry Styles or anything. <laughs> you could wear a skirt. I could see you in a skirt. Uh, well, yeah, we have the same stylist. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now, um, you know, and so to get on TV is is really big, and that was a really nice, um, really nice, you know, boost to the careers. Absolutely, that's awesome. Oh, and Timothy Oliphant seems like a sweetheart of a guy. Like I don't, I don't know him, but he seems like a really nice guy. Timothy Oliphant, yeah, he seems like it to me. I've, I've met him a couple of times, and uh, yeah. great actor. All justified. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tangled. I'm, actually, I'm friends with Ian McShane. Oh. Ian and Timothy were in um, in uh, Deadwood together. Yeah, great, yeah. great. They were great together in Deadwood. Yeah, they were, and. Uh, so I, I feel like I know Timothy Oliphant more through Ian McShane than, than I wow. do through Oh, that was a great fucking show. Wow. That's that was a that that show could that show could have gone on forever. What Deadwood or Justified? Deadwood, both. Well, but Justified both. too. But yeah. Deadwood, Deadwood was like one of the one of the first like shows of that genre that I really got hooked into. You know? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. great. Ian's was such a master. You know? Oh God, the best. So yeah. fucking good for sure. Tangled actually also said. The song Boss of the Blues is a phenomenal lyrical masterpiece. How true are the events of the story? 100% entirely true. Nice. Wow. That's, That's a cool answer, right? Yeah. Greg, Greg Mira said, uh, hey, Dave, one of your brothers from Downey here. Dave is a legend. See you, Chris and Pitts. Nice. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then... As a writer, how odd is it to see artists like Dwight Yoakam and John Doe hit big with his songs Long White Cadillac and Fourth of July? Additionally, who who cover song does Dave find to be a great blue wing by Tom Russell? 
who covers song? Uh, Blue Wing is one of my favorite songs. It's written by uh, a guy I've written, co-written a lot of songs with a great songwriter named Tom Russell. And nice. I wish I'd, I wish I had co-written Blue Wing. I wish I'd written Blue Wing. And I recorded it uh, on my King California record. And, um, so people tend to think I wrote it because it's on my record. And sometimes I don't tell them I did. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And uh, Cyborg Cassowary had he said, just listen to your song Peace. It's so good. Starting to believe peace is not necessarily pacifism, it's nonviolence. According to nonviolence by Mark Kalansky, Jesus Christ pronounced that pacifism is turning the other cheek while nonviolence is acting. Initial intakes. Interesting. Well, I, I didn't write that. That was a Willie Dixon song, the great blues songwriter who was a, a friend of mine. And, oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did a bird. I love that song. And, uh, I, you know, um, we we don't do we want to get theological here? Sure, whatever you want to do. You can take it wherever you want to take it. We're open to everything. Yeah, do we want to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that um, you know I think that uh, I think uh, we're as a, as a as a as a race as a as a human race we're too quick to violence. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The smarter we get, the more we can back off from it but then there are times when there are you know I, i've been in enough bar rooms to know that there are bullies yeah yeah you know and um and you don't you know to find bullies you don't you don't have to go far you know right. yeah so there are there are some guys that all that's all they understand and yep. so yeah it, it is kind of it, you know, I I support nonviolence over violence, but there are times when um, there are bullies, and and sometimes those bullies run countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, you know, yeah, Adolf Hitler, or Stalin, or uh, you know, yeah, Putin, Putin, yeah, sure, absolutely. So you know, but on the other hand, you gotta, you know. There, not everybody is like that. And right, so, yeah, it's true. There's a lot of good out there. Yeah, John yeah. hates that I'm such an optimist. No, I'm not. I don't hate that you're an optimist. I, I respect it. I like it. I know you just don't believe me. I get it. Casper <laughs> <laughs> says, "Can can one write lyrics like Ernest Hemingway? Look at them the next morning and then decide to throw them away." If they were anything like Ernest Hemingway, you wouldn't throw them away. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great, a good answer. Great response. Good answer. Tangled said. What made you choose to put the kick-ass Rosa Park line back into the song Sit Down that was originally cut out? Because Willie Dixon had told me that the record label, you know, said, eh, uh, you may not want to put that in there. You know, back in uh, whatever year, if he cut it with Otis Rush, you know, he wrote it and he produced the session. Yeah. And, you know, years later when I knew Willie a bit, you know, in the 80s, yeah, he told me about that line. Mm -hmm. And so when I recorded the song with my brother, I was like, well, Let's put it back in. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Always go against the record label. At this point, yeah. it's kind of that controversial, but I guess in 1957. Right. Yeah. The guys at Cobra Records thought, well, we're going to lose a lot of airplay. And, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. And then just a lot of love from everybody else, too, checking in from all over. We have them from all over like the globe, which is great, right? Hey, Jerry. Yeah. Pleasure, Terry. St. Louis. Awesome. Yeah. Um, great. I, I want to thank you one for coming on, dude, because it's been a blast talking to you. Um, thank you, thank you, I've got 
I've got three questions that we ask every guest that's on the show. Uh, first question is, if you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? Um, that music business thing. Eh. <laughs> Love it. Um, uh, second question is, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? What had to end? Yeah, good my, or bad. My academic career. Nice. That was a good answer. That's a really that good is, answer. Yeah, you mentioned that before that it was kind of scattered like a choppy one. Like, was it? Do you, did you drop out, go back, drop out, go back? What was the? Um, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, John. <laughs> <laughs> and I especially wasn't in those days when uh, when I drank a lot. Mm. Going back to. Talk about imitating Charles Bukowski or people of that sort. Right. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. Maybe I wasn't. Gotcha. Yeah. Can I, I understand? Can I hit him with the third question? So, yeah, I figured that I was like, I was rewording it in my head. <laughs> if we were in a genuine trouble dystopia, with this last question, <laughs> right? If we're in a genuine dystopia, right, and everything's going crazy in the world. How do you see yourself spending your time in it? If there's a zombie apocalypse, a meteor heading towards the earth, tidal wave overtaking everything, how do you want to see yourself going going through it? Smoking. <laughs> <laughs> great answer. Perfect. Beautiful. <laughs> that was a great awesome. answer. Awesome. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much for coming on, man. I, I love talking to you. Seriously, it's been great. Sorry if I talked too much. And we'll no. see, see you down the road, I hope. Absolutely, Never. It was man, such yeah. a pleasure, and we can't wait. Hopefully, you're going to be in the area. We'll definitely come check you out. I'm looking yeah, forward man. to it. Peace Thanks out, man. so much, man. Have a great one. Dystopia tonight.